Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and welcome back to a new year of the MTF podcast. A lot of important and interesting things have happened in the time since we last spoke, some big personal life stuff, as well as some incredibly important new developments for MTF, the industry commons, and what we've now got lined up in the calendar for 2020. I've also had the chance to sit down and have some of the most fascinating conversations with some brilliant people from the world of music, technology and innovation, not necessarily in that order, and you're going to be meeting some of those people over the coming weeks on the MTF podcast. Now, I really want to kick off the new year in the right way by introducing you to Dan Hill. For the past year, almost to the day, Dan has been the Director of Strategic Design at Vinova, Sweden's Government Innovation Authority. Before that, well, lots of things, including Head of Interactive Technology and Design at the BBC, Director of Web and Broadcast at Monocle, CEO of Fabrica, Design Advocate for the Mayor of London, Executive Director of Future Cities Catapult, not to mention a few books, a spot of designing websites for bands you've heard of, and some fairly prolific long-form blogging and serious international thought leadership on the topics of innovation, culture, creativity, and design. Now, one of the main things that Dan thinks about for a living is the idea of the city, and this is a major theme for MTF in 2020. Now, as you can probably imagine, The conversation with Dan was fairly wide-ranging and we had a lot to talk about, so what we've done is divide this podcast up as a two-parter. In this episode, Dan talks about his journey, the innovations he's spearheaded in the worlds of media and music, and talks about new ways to think about what a city is and what it can be in the future. It'll continue next week in part two, when we'll talk about the physical internet, music metadata, how far we've come in the past 15 years of digital music, sound for urban environments in an age of electric and autonomous vehicles, and, well, a lot more. The changeover from 2019 to 2020 was full of highlights, and this was definitely one of them. From our conversation in the Vinova head offices in Stockholm, this is Dan Hill. Enjoy. Dan Hill, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Your job title is Director of Strategic Design at Vinova. I've got a couple of questions arising from that. see the smile on your face from there, yes. <laughs> okay, so, so okay, first of all, what's Vinova? That's an easy one. That's the Swedish Government's Innovation Agency. So we're responsible for uh, coordinating the innovation ecosystems in the country, basically. Part of the government. But um, uh, traditionally, we fund a lot of stuff, like fund R&D projects, innovation projects, things like that. What I do within that is uh, maybe more exploratory stuff, which is sort of figuring out what needs to happen in the first place. How do we address some of these really complex challenges that aren't just a question of throwing um, money in an existing investment pipeline or you know, saying there's a big business, they just need more big business. We're trying to figure out, well, what do we do to really address really complex challenges that don't fit neatly into silos or don't fit neatly into understood practices. Hence design coming to that much more. Um, and also then uh, investment is less of a thing that drives our work actually. It could be about, um, well all of these companies are ready to go, just the law needs to change in some way. Or actually uh, the public sector is what needs the attention here. We need to build new capabilities in city governments for instance. That's a good answer from my work. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that innovation agency remit is something that I'm sort of pushing the edges of um, quite a lot in different different areas. And you describe yourself as a designer? Yeah, very much so in, um, in that that's 
what most of my career has been about, and it really is the way that I see the world and interact with it. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, it's not something that, um, despite my job title, I lead with necessarily, because sometimes that word can put people right off straight away, you know, and um, when they say, yeah, you're a designer, but what are you doing? Are you making chairs and buildings and stuff? It's like, oh, no, you're making websites? Well, not really. You know, now I'm basically looking at organizations and policies and the way that people interact with each other and designing uh, processes and environments for people to come together or designing structures or systems in some way. So I guess it's got unfortunately abstract at times. So how do you know when you've done your job well? <laughs> when we've hit all of those global challenges that I'm looking at on the wall behind you. Right, okay. uh, so like the, um, so yes, uh, the, the, when we come to, so what are the challenges? Oh. They're things like how do we um, radically transform air quality, carbon emissions, pollution, the way that housing works, the way that mobility works, you know, actually all very tangible things. How do we quadruple the amount of tree cover in cities, things like that. Uh, How do we create spaces that are conducive to social interaction? How do we uh, enable um, migration in a way which is um, uh, a way that can be seen as a positive thing where people can bring cultures to a place but also absorb the existing culture of a place harmoniously. You know? mm-hmm. So within that set I just gave you, there are some that are pretty easy to measure I mean, to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Did air quality improve from this to this right. in this way? Because we took cars away and put bikes there instead? Absolutely. So that's stuff that I'm working on and driven towards. And then there's stuff that's less tangible, which mm-hmm. is the stuff about, I mentioned about migration or social interaction, where it's, that's just harder to measure. So it's, that's something where, you know, how would I answer your question there? Then you can look at proxy measures for those things. Did we stop fighting in that state? Right. <laughs> uh, have we got the right diversity of people in the workforce coming through from different backgrounds, globally, culturally, coming through into Swedish startups or businesses or public sector? Then yes, there are measures there as well. But that's where immediately, that's the area that I love because that gets into these really complex, ambiguous, less tangible areas, um, which are much harder for policymakers to get their head around mm-hmm. using traditional tools. Sure. I'm sure you understand. So that's why I think as a designer, um, uh, I have something at least to offer in that space because designers are. Um, some extent anyway drawn towards asking the question you know in the right way or like at least let's let's think you know, what's the question behind that really? yeah i find that but really really interesting because a lot of people start with problems like this with a whole lot of i guess what you call presuppositions mm-hmm. there, there are certain kind of um starting points that are just givens yeah uh, and i always want to sort of rip that away and go right starting from scratch yeah. what would this look like i mean for instance the idea of cities yeah um do we start with this this idea that okay we've got cities we're already there mm-hmm. how do we build them into nice places or mm-hmm. we go if we were building nice places mm-hmm. would this be what we end up with mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I'm very much digging into that you know the basic, what's the underlying question what's the underlying assumptions there's a great quote from Cedric Price the British architect which I overuse uh, he said this in 1965. He said, "Technology is the answer, but what was the question?" <laughs> and uh, you know, if I had something written on a T-shirt to describe my work, <laughs> that's it. Because it's sort of, I'm often in the world where people will say, "Oh yeah, autonomous vehicles, yeah, or something, AI." And I'm like, "Yeah, but AI about what and why?" You know, it's like AI isn't necessarily a you know an untrammeled good or bad. You know, you'd use it in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So then you have to ask the question: So what's it for? So what surgery I think was saying was. Back then, around cars, mainly in cities, that was the big tech of his day. 
uh, I was saying um, people were obviously going around taking cities like Birmingham and Auckland mm -hmm. and you're from and dropping cars into the left, right and centre and carving the city apart. And he was saying, hang on a minute, we need to have a conversation about what these cities are about first mm. and then we can talk about technology. Yeah. So as with music, you know, we can talk about the relationship between music and technology and the sort of chicken and egg relationship between those two forever. But unless you have a sort of a musical thought in your head, no amount of tech thrown at it will save that. You know, you sure. can't start with that. Now, you might use tech to tweak what you do and open up new questions and avenues. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. But at the end of the day, unless you're making music tech as a business, you're making music. Mm. And so that's what I'm trying to get into with cities. It's like, why do cities exist? What are they for? Yeah. Culture, community, commerce to some extent, you know, like conviviality. Mm -hmm. They all begin with C for some reason. <laughs> um, so those are the, that's why we bring, we make cities for people to come together and do something together, right? right. And then you have a bunch of enablers of that, like transport, yeah. housing. Uh, green spaces or blue spaces or energy and water and waste and those are the they only exist in order to enable the first set of things but one reason or another we've kind of built city governments or disciplines around those enablers not the outcomes so you have a ministry of transport and you have a ministry of energy and so on and at the city level and they drive very much what happens like an engineering problem and mm. I'm often the one putting on the table saying so hang on but why why is that fly over there or why is that? Is that because it's not sort of joined up thinking that there are people who are in charge of specific mm -hmm. you know, atomic units of city mm -hmm. uh, that actually don't kind of interact as a, an ecosystem? That's where we've ended up, definitely. So I say this about, we're doing a lot of projects around streets at the moment here, uh -huh. and I'm trying to un, you know, unpick. So the street is a, even if I say street, immediately there's a complex question. Of what does he mean by street? Does he mean... Right. Uh, something where people live, work, and play and interact. There's a bit of density in life there, which is kind of what I'm getting at. But mm -hmm. that's not a technical definition straight away. Right. Something like Trafikverke or Transportstyrelsen in the Swedish context in the government have very literal definitions that are between a street and a state road and a country road and things like that. Okay. So yeah. immediately we get into that. And then we say, so why streets? You know, they're not for traffic. Right, they're not, that's not why they exist. Mm -hmm. And if you look at an old Italian city or a Greek city, they're pretty much also about markets, about social interaction, about uh, shade and about numerous things. But they're about parties, they're about drinking in the evening or you know, taking cover in the morning, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then traffic is sort of introduced to those things, but it's the other way around. But we've let often in, let's just call them developed countries for sake of argument, um, the streets are now run by traffic engineers, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I have this diagram. If you put traffic engineer into the street, you, traffic is what comes out, like the clues in the name. Right? Yeah. Sort of, and you can get more or less of it, but basically that's what it produces. If you let gardeners govern the street, you get gardens. So we don't. We let traffic engineers do it. So I'm just sort of saying, okay, how many different perspectives can we get into this complex thing called the street? And let's mm -hmm. see it as a complex thing, but in a beautiful, everyday kind of way. Right. And then we can see that as a real powerful multiplier of all kinds of diverse activities, music, festivals, <laughs> uh, businesses, you know, life in general, greenery, mm. everything. And traffic is one of the things that happens there, for sure. Right. But it's not the point. What you're saying is rather than divide a large city up into its functions, yeah. you divide a small amount of city up 
as a powerful generator of possible things, you know. And then right. imagine if you had that again. Imagine if you sort of had like a department of gardening running the streets. You'd have a very different kind of city coming out of that. So I'm not suggesting that, but I'm suggesting that is one of the. Does interests. sound like a nice idea. It's not bad. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and funnily, this is not to name drop, but this is where I had a chat with Brian Eno about this because I was part of a. Um, commission in the UK working for the government on the industrial strategy and one reason or another too long to go into Brian and I ended up in the commission and it was fantastic having him in the room as you might imagine because the bunch of the rest of us are so-called experts in our areas me now is like an urban urbanist sort of expert and I was responsible for coming up with some uh, challenges to the government around mobility and one of the things I was talking about was streets and so on I was kind of heading that way but I was also, I realized in retrospect, playing it safe a bit because I knew the Department of Transport and others were on the end of this. So right. I can't walk in there talking about gardens straight away. They literally would laugh me out of the room. I was heading that way, <laughs> but meandering that way. Yep. Brian instantly just sort of subverted the whole thing beautifully at one point in the, this afternoon in this boring committee room in UCL in London. And he said, this is all great, but what if we could imagine a city where people just slowed down a lot more and things moved a little less? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, yeah. you know, just immediately changed the tenor of the conversation. We've got those like, already. They're called not cities. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but how, why doesn't that happen in a very urban, dense environment? Absolutely mm. could. Mm. You know, there's no reason why. Is it's, there a reason that we need to have an urban, dense environment still? Uh, I think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think. But then there's a question about how do you make that have the qualities of maybe what you're alluding to in your question. Mm. So we can, in my view, you can have, and this is what Brian was getting at, you can have slow cities, like, mm. think like slow food you know, right. as, a, as a thing, and super green, super convivial, beautiful, uh, pure air, pure water, you know, just uh, full of life and conviviality. Imagine that, mm -hmm. but with a bit of density. There's no problem with that technically. Sure. It's not a technical question uh, that you, that cannot exist. It's uh -huh. the way that we've run them that means that doesn't exist. Again, giving the streets to the traffic engineers is why then you think it's not nice to stand in the bullring in Birmingham, or as, as it used to be. Yeah. Uh, it's nicer than it used to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But when there's 7,000 cars every 10 minutes, yeah. of course it's not nice. Yeah, we didn't have to do that. That was Cedric, Cedric Price's point. So it doesn't oh. have to be like that. No. And that was Brian's point as well. So you could have a city which all the deliveries are on cargo bikes, basically. You could have you know, food grown far more in an urban location. It can be super green and convivial. The buildings can be made out of wood. The street becomes this completely social space. Mm -hmm. uh, it's built for kids and old people simultaneously. You know, it's sort of, those are entirely possible to do. So what's the journey that somebody like you takes from... I don't know, a uh, 10-year-old child to becoming the person who says, wouldn't it be nice if things were nice around here for the government? <laughs> yeah. um, what was the kind of the, the, the moment that started you down that path, do you think? Um, the short version of that, because that's just way too long to get into, but the, um, I did a computer science degree first and found it hard, because I got into computers quite early through... Um, you know, like many of us did in the mid-80s by chance. Mm -hmm. My dad was a head teacher, happened to bring home an Apple II from his school holiday on, over the summer. One, right. I don't know when that would have been, 84, I don't know. But yeah. um, maybe uh, earlier, actually. That would have been earlier if it's Apple II. And uh, I, loved, I was playing Defender on that, you know. Yep, <laughs> and then, know. exactly. And then I ended up with a ZX81, I think, at some point, and so on. And I ended up with a Spectrum, and then was, 
what I found myself doing was drawing a lot on it. Okay. Yeah. And I did this with coding, but I realized looking back at the coding I was doing on the ZX Spectrum, you know, like typing basic in line by line, mm -hmm. I ended up designing an interface for something that had no content, which is hilarious. It was like, a, it was like a, you could pull down a menu and move a cursor around with the, the arrow keys, and I was just sort of getting it to do that. You know, it's okay. just the most abstract thing ever. <laughs> But it was because I was drawn towards interaction, I realized in retrospect and thinking, yeah. how do we make something that people might want to use? And you know, I was more interested in that than, say, using code to write a word processor or something. Mm -hmm. I was going to make the interface for the word processor without realizing a word processor was a thing. Um, ended up doing computer science, struggled with that, because I'm not a great coder or anything. So what I was drawn towards, again, was the human side of that very much, human-computer interaction, as it was called at the time. Bits of AI, even then, actually. This was 1988 to 1992, so wow. using the internet without knowing it kind of days. And, um, and then my final year project was something about gender bias in computer science. Not quite sure how I got there, but that's where I ended up. And uh, I was looking at... Uh, then video games quite a lot within that. Like, why do video games kind of enculture boys to pick up computers more than girls? And I went into the history of that. I looked at things like Hypercard and these more open building platforms that were less um, gendered, if I put it that way. Mm -hmm. And um, started playing around with uh, how would you convey culture through those things. I made a Hypercard stack for Death of a Salesman, I remember at the time, and then thinking, well, you know, it'd be interesting then look at the context of that play in the late 50s and let's say Miles Davis making music at the same time. And could you click on a link from Death of a Salesman end up at Kind of Blue, jump to somewhere about fashion that the Miles Quintet was wearing and then back into Death of a Salesman. So all of those early hypertext Mm -hmm. ideas without realizing that the network would be the thing that would actually make that viable. I was, I was not that smart. Right. <laughs> but again, just looking at that. And then that became then a master's in urban sociology, as it turned out. I started in Manchester Met. I started it thinking I'm going to be doing something about video games. But then the, the web just sort of appeared in mm -hmm. 94, 95, in front of my eyes at least. What was your first experience of that? Um, probably reading about it in a magazine. Right. And then, uh, you know, the, the, or the newspaper or something. And then, um, yeah, having a modem to hand, I guess, at a university. Must have been around then. Because, again, I'd used the internet from 1988, but without really knowing I was doing it, and mm. I'd used a lot of that stuff at the time. It wasn't a big feature of a computer science degree, ironically, at that mm. point. Um, so it became something that I, I just sort of picked up as a curiosity. Are you talking bulletin boards and, and uh, yeah, on the, on and certainly the internet stuff on the computer science degree absolutely was yeah. email and FTP and telnet and stuff like Go that. Go for it. Yes, exactly. And um, the way that those systems ran, and of course we covered it on a networks course, but we had no idea that this was about to be a thing. Mm -hmm. That's certainly not the thing it became. Anyway, that meant that when I got to thinking I want to do a master's. I worked at Manchester City Council for a year or two in between the bachelor's and the master's. Then uh, I thought, I want to pick up this stuff about gender bias again. But actually, what's interesting to me now is video games and where they come from. Like, why in Manchester, at least, is Ocean Software, who are big at the time, mm -hmm. why do they end up there? And then, you know, what's the, like, why, where does that company come from? It's a cultural company. You know, this is all part of making the point about video games being culture and not being 
moral panic, mm-hmm. um, death of civilization stuff. Um, and just saying that they're, they're sitting alongside music and graphic design as part of, you know, in this case. Was the music thing big for you at the time? Were you, you know, yeah, yeah, going I, to I, bands, I, playing in bands? Yep. Uh, yep, yep, yep. I was uh, I was in Manchester of in course, the early nineties, so yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Um, you know, I went to the Hacienda a couple of times, and you know, um, mates very much in bands. Me on the edge of bands, a terrible guitarist, and um, likewise. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but a massive music fan, spending most of my disposable income on CDs and things, mm-hmm. and going to gigs a lot. Yeah, uh, bouncing between Manchester and London. In particular, and um, don't know where that had come from, particularly because my parents didn't really have that. But that was just something that was that was picked up, I suppose, when I went uh, going from school to college. So yeah, when I was looking then at video games, for me it was like a cultural scene, like the music scene was, and that's the. I worked at a place called the Manchester Institute for Popular Culture, which doesn't exist anymore, but was big in the big. I'm doing inverted commas for those listening. Um, big in the mid-90s, and there were researchers there looking at the rave scene and the, the Mancunian music scene and, and looking at it as sociology. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Why does it come from here? What are its network dynamics and things mm-hmm. like that? Uh, and then looking at the fashion scene alongside that, another mate of mine at the time looking at football fan culture and those sort of things, a lot of media and cultural studies. And I thought, oh, I'll drop video games into that mix. That would okay. be interesting. And then, very quickly, it was a pivot, as we would say now, towards the, towards the internet and the web. And then thinking about, okay, the new media scene, as it was, it was just flourishing overnight, mm-hmm. effectively. It was, yeah. That was more interesting for me to look at. But I was looking at it from this very sort of sociological lens of why does it happen there? Why, do those, why are those guys mates with those guys? And why are they then building a website for them? Yeah. And I realized that in doing this, we, just the particular mode of this sociology was... Um, participant observation, lots of ethnography. So we set up a base in uh, Manchester's northern quarter, very involved in the regeneration of the city, an active participant in it, mm-hmm. you know, with a studio in a, upstairs from an architect's next to a record shop, right. running our research from there. And the way that we did the research was that I basically built the websites for everybody that I was researching. You know, so I was, I'd go to Fat City Records and yeah. Eastern Block and you know, all of those things. And if they didn't already have a website, I would build one for them and uh-huh. in a way that, well, let's figure it out together. Is this thing going to catch on? Yeah. You know, is it any good? And I was researching it whilst being a participant at the same time. And then I realized I'm just enjoying this designing stuff, making up the websites in a way more than I am the academic stuff. Right. But not exclusively. It wasn't like I, I got my master's and things. And, um, and it wasn't that I stopped thinking that stuff. It's just that's the, when, the way that I then became a designer. So this is mm. the... Not very short answer to your question, sorry. But it's just the the way that I've then become a designer is through practice. I didn't go to design school. I learned how to do it uh, in a self-taught way. And then once you do that for 25, 30 years, then you know, you're not bad at it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I brought into it as a designer was this very much sort of people and place-based approach because of this sociological background and understanding it as a cultural artifact and then having this very diverse set of references and ranges that I could, I could bring into this work in some way. Mm-hmm. And so while I was obsessed with graphic design and David Carson and Designers Republic and Warp Records and what they were doing and all those things... Mm-hmm. Um, I was also looking at this other more kind of human and historical and cultural, like, again, why Manchester? Going back to, well, the Halle Orchestra has been there since 1862. It's been a place for radical politics for a long time and so on. All of that stuff 
means you end up with a small web design agency on a, yeah. in a, upstairs from a shop in Oldham Street. And so that massively interconnected complex web of ways of seeing the world was just utterly natural to me. And that turned out to be handy for wrangling the internet, it turns out. And I didn't see that coming. I just knew that when it emerges, that, ah, that totally makes sense to me as a way of working. Everything in it, from the, the crashing of high culture and low culture simultaneously to the complex internecine challenges around the way that networking works. And mm -hmm. It's global and local at the same time. You can have a shot like Eastern Block, which is utterly Mancunian and exists in 50 square meters and simultaneously can be selling records to Moscow and Memphis. You know, yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> so colliding these things, the technology, the people, the, uh, the cultural aspect of it, I guess there's a... Not a clear route, but a but a, an understandable route from that to what you ended up doing at the BBC. Yeah, exactly. So then I, I moved to London uh, from Manchester, as many people do, unfortunately. Um, and that was partly because the web design scene was clearly there at this point in Shoreditch around 1997. This is before they were calling it the Silicon Roundabout. Yeah. yeah. So that was yeah definitely moving to a place in transition. And I worked for a company called State 51 who were... Theoretically, like second or third new media company in the country, but the one that no one's ever heard of because they never made it big in the dot-com boom, which was interesting, and in a good way, because mm. as a result of never making that much money. Because it's been sustainable. They're still yeah. in existence yeah. now. <laughs> and um, anyway, we were then, uh, they had a retainer with Virgin Records and EMI to be their, basically their new media agency uh -huh. at the time. So I went straight into that and then started immediately building websites for pretty much anybody on the Virgin and EMI roster at that point, right. which in those days when those labels were big beasts were a lot of people, everybody from Genesis and the Spice Girls through to Chemical Brothers and so on. So mm -hmm. it was just this roller coaster ride of, um, yeah, somehow going Genesis, Spice Girls, Chemical Brothers or from one day to another and making sense of all that as a as a, someone that was very much interested in alternative or non-mainstream or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, so on the side of that, we also, as well as doing all that Virgin AMI work, we set up something called Motion, which was a kind of a website with um, and then a mailing list. We started running gigs from this place we had in London, which was this disused factory, which was big enough to handle that. We uh, wrote these platforms that were, like as I briefly mentioned earlier, one was called a specialist record shop finder, where you could say, okay, I'm going to Lisbon or Leicester. Where are the good record shops there? Yeah. And it would list where they are, what they're into, and what they know about. I did the same thing for bookshops later on. That's pretty much the last code I wrote in Perl. I suspect I've used um, that. Yeah, I mean, it was big at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, of course, things like Facebook and others sort of immediately crushed it later, and or many other things, in fact. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that was really uh, this interesting balancing act of almost like simultaneously in the same business. We were, you know, I was literally designing the Spice Gold site, which was kind of very instructive in lots of interesting ways. Uh, like looking at the suddenly the massive global reach that something like that. I remember literally like dragging an index.html file onto the FTP server with a new. Um, basically news item on the web page because right. that's how you did it and just watching the server log in real time of like these like piranha bites you know just kind of jumping at this new meat yeah. and they were all coming in from Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia just sort of you could see oh my god this thing's incredible both this thing both being the internet and the Spice Girls yeah. <laughs> at the same time just sort of seeing that that's kind of extraordinary and then in the meantime working with the most esoteric 
you know, like a, a Derek Bailey re-release <laughs> from 1983 of something on, on Zadik or something like that, yeah. and writing reviews about that and having building then a global community of people interested in that. So yeah. it's just, yeah, immediately fascinating and led straight to ultimately the BBC's doors where I then, after many years, ended up as the head of interactive technology and design, uh, sitting in the radio and music division, yeah. looking after... Uh, what became iPlayer, briefly design lead on iPlayer for a while before I left and went to Oz, but um, building Radio Player, which was the predecessor of that, streaming all of the audio out across all the major mm. networks, dealing with uh, well, introducing podcasting into the BBC, which I'm a mate in that. That'll never catch on. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm a mate in my team, a guy called Matt Webb. Um, leaning across the desk one afternoon and saying, there's this thing where you can take an MP3 file and sort of wrap it into an XML and it can be then sort of sent automatically to people. Like, they just subscribe to it. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said, yeah, and it's called podcasting apparently. And there's, you know, four of them in the world or something like that. And, uh, and so but at that point, we positioned ourselves within the BBC at a team of about 50 or so, actually, just building the website. Yeah, it's focus. quite a luxury to... Yeah, no, yeah. and then it was ultimately part of a team of thousands, right? But wow. became a, I had a very small R&D team within that, and we could take an idea like that that Matt mentioned over the desk in an afternoon, and then the next morning, be able to sort of go and talk to our Radio 4 colleague and say, have you got a show that we can try this out on? There needs to be something that's not that popular, <laughs> because we don't really know yet. And they said, hmm, in our time with Melvin Bragg, right. yeah. um, you know, mid-morning, highly intellectual show, it has uh, Close Your Ears BBC, sometimes only thousands of listeners, yeah. um, despite going out on the national speech radio network. Um, is that esoteric? And we thought, perfect, like under the radar, we'll, we'll try that. And in that, in that time, there were all the conversations you just alluded to, like radio journalists saying to me, this is the death of radio, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is gonna just lead to, uh, it's gonna lead to superstar presenters like Chris Evans leaving the BBC and having their own podcast show. Of course, those things happen. <laughs> but uh, equally, we, we were saying, well, it could also be the way that the BBC manages to like navigate through these changes mm -hmm. that's going on in the landscape. If we don't do that and understand it, then people will do it to us. Mm -hmm. so I'd rather that we were on the front foot about this. And obviously we had some understanding of that. So we managed to, long story short, again, negotiate all that through, chuck in, chuck in our time online. And as soon as the producers obviously start seeing, oh my God, we've quadrupled the audience within one day by having people in Australia and America listening to the show all of a sudden, then it's like they couldn't get enough of it. Right. So then we're having to pick our way through that carefully and make sure that then we built a structure around that. A lot of my work was then building the architecture for what we call ultimately the program information pages so that you can point at a broadcast, or say late junction on Radio 3, and you can make a link to it from your website and you know that link's not gonna die and you, because it sounds so basic, but in those days, when you think about broadcast, you make a show, you fire it at the airwaves, disappears, you're onto the next show. You've got a recording of it, but mm. that's it. And so the BBC was totally in broadcast mode for about 70 or 80 years. Yeah. And for us to say, well, you make a show now, it's there forever. 
Mm. It doesn't go away. Like that show existed. So it's like the Radio Times, but forever yeah. in perpetuity available at all times. So it's a completely re-engineer the way everything works. It's so. a scary thing for them. I got brought in, uh, well, a couple of us got brought in by, uh, I think maybe a colleague of yours, Tristan Fern, mm. um, to... He was in my R&D team after Matt was. Right, okay. Um, but the idea was that uh, the radio stations, or the radio brands, as they were calling themselves, yeah. the idea of anything that you put online uh, for the people running the radio brands was to bring people into listening to the brand. Yeah. So a Radio 2 listener was a Radio 2 listener, a Radio 3 listener was yeah, a Radio 3 listener. Absolutely. And what the uh, what Tristan and, and some of his colleagues were going is, no, some people like jazz. And mm. we've got jazz on 6 Music, we've got mm. jazz on th um, 3, we've got exactly. jazz on... Yeah. Um, so how can we yeah. uh, navigate that and, and what does the new technology enable us to do? Completely. I mean, so that was my day job, basically, like working that stuff through. And we did that. Ultimately, I ended up at a very relatively high level, I suppose, at the BBC. Um, and then working simultaneously on running these teams where we're making the Six Music website. And so you're th immediately thinking about the architecture of that page. How do we have the BBC as kind of a meta global brand, yep. which has huge meaning globally. Obviously, mm -hmm. people know the BBC way more than they know Six Music. Yep. So it gives a lot of trust and value. So you need that there. Yep. You can't say that to people at Six Music, by the way, because they're kind of... <laughs> and at Radio 1 was particularly hard, and not to get too British about this, but Radio 1 is the youth one, like the Triple J in Australia, whatever it is, wherever you are listening. Ratings by day, reputation by night. <laughs> and, it, and it actually wanted not that much to do with the BBC, because it would see the BBC as this, you know, representing the 60-year-old, quite fusty, yeah. you know, sort of establishment. Radio 4, if you like. Yeah. Uh, BBC One and the mainstream. And they wanted to be edgy and, you know, 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 15-year-old. So we had to coax them into using it quite a lot. Mm. And meanwhile, with others, you're kind of almost having to rip it out of their hands and say, you need to loosen up about it. And as you said, someone's going to be more into jazz than they are BBC, and you want them too. Because yeah. that way you can get them into Six Music and then the BBC through that route. So we did tons of work on how do people understand music? You know, and then a lot of my work was about the information architecture of that. Right. If you, do you like Miles Davis? Do you like jazz? Do you like 1950s stuff? So were you involved you in like the same music project? Yeah, 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 very much. That was under my team. So uh, both working with the radio brands and then Slash Music, which was basically about not the BBC brands like BBC One, Two, Three, Four, Five or Radio One, Two, Three, Four, Five, but uh, Slash Jazz, Slash Hip Hop, whatever. Incredibly complex work behind the scenes, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. we, we led that very much with, um, again, user-centered research. We, yeah. we went out and we interviewed people and we talked to them. We looked at the way they use music in everyday life. And we said, this person loves soundtracks. This person loves jazz. This person loves things called Miles Davis because <laughs> their dad liked it. I don't know. And this person loves Radio 2. This person wants something to listen to on the bus. This person wants something to listen to while they're cooking. You know, and just sort of bring all of that into yeah. play. And as you can imagine at the BBC, most people have never really thought about doing that. Mm. They're in the building making the show and sort of throwing it off the top of the roof yeah. at the nation, which is extraordinary. You don't want to lose that. Mm. But they had no real audience research or understanding. And then, it turns out that people are complicated, which I guess you took from that job elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And understanding the context of their life. And then also the deeper stuff about understanding that maybe they're also making music. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they also have something to say about the show. Yeah. You know, and those, again, these are like, what? Mm. What do you mean? We well, that was the thing we found with this uh, research project we did with Tristan, which was about how 
fans of specialist music engage with the BBC online about their fandom. Yeah. Um, and to a large extent, they didn't. Mm. Uh, they communicated with each other about their mm. fandom and it happened to sort of intersect with the BBC. But, yeah. um, but what was really interesting is the amount of, uh, I guess what you call cultural generation that was going on that wasn't just about passive consumption. It was tons, about tons. people writing about music, people dancing to music, people you know sharing it, people. Yeah, and I, I was a very active uh, blogger at this time in the days when you call a blogger. Um, from about 2001 on. I still use that. Yeah, no, uh, me too. So, and I was very aware of writing about stuff and pointing at it and therefore, you know, generating content, use that word, or editorial, Mm -hmm. whatever, around something that someone else had done, whether it was an artwork or a TV show. And I was able then to bring that in also, obviously, my understanding of that as a participant within it and saying, look, there are, we had this concept called ripples, as in you, you, when you're making a radio show or a TV show, when you're making EastEnders on BBC One, you're throwing out there at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday and a Thursday, that's like dropping a huge pebble in a pond and there are ripples coming out from that thing all over the place. There are people in the pub talking about it instantly. There are people writing about it in the next day. Either as a journalist in the mainstream media or as a blogger now, or someone just later on mm-hmm. who would have been tweeting about it. You know? and, mm-hmm. You as the BBC, you want to understand, that's all stuff that you stimulated, massively powerful. And it's part of your ambit and remit to understand that and dig into it, partly because that's massively interesting, partly because it's cultural generation, as you'd say, that you've stimulated. It's entirely what you're there to do Mm -hmm. as the Beeb. So, but again, that took a long time to get through because you can imagine a radio journalist doesn't necessarily, previously they could never see that stuff. So how can we listen to all the conversations in the pub up and down the country about EastEnders? Mm-hmm. You can't, no. Yeah. But this stuff you can absolutely see and read. And you can even write code which extracts the keywords out of it if you wanted to. Yeah. So, so that was a, there was a lot of change going on there. And just again, just to sort of then generalize away from the BBC, what my career then became about ultimately was when the internet, and let's just use that as a sort of a container for all the stuff we've just talked about, hits an industry or a thing, mm-hmm. that's, when I, that's when I can do something vaguely useful. So I, I realized that then from the BBC, I went to Monocle, which was a starting up a magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which was going from you know, 30,000 people down to about 15 people in a room in Marylebone. Super interesting, right. building all of that stuff out. And then moved to Oz and ultimately ended up working at Arup, a very large engineering architecture company. And I realized that, okay, the internet and all of that stuff is going to hit cities and buildings and architecture. And I knew that from my urban sociology degree. I had a background in there, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't an architect. I'm still not an architect. But, um, but that turned out to be quite useful. But this is actually then, those technologies are also changing the way people interact with each other and work and play and live. And therefore, that's about cities and making cities and governing cities and so on. Then back to, uh, then, well, then to Finland, actually, which is to Helsinki to Citra, where I then realized this kind of design work is becoming, this is where this term strategic design started emerging. So it's not just interaction design, which is what I was. Mm-hmm. Interaction design, I was designing the way that you interact with a thing. And it wasn't really service design, which is, okay, then how do we rebuild the organization to make that work well? And uh, you know what the, what's the wider context of that? Fantastic. Strategic design was then opening up. So what's this all about in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, what is a hospital? What is healthcare? given the internet, given contemporary culture, given massive cultural diversity and so on. It's not just as it was in 1950. It's not like the blueprint for the NHS in 1948. It's now got to be some other kind of thing. It can have the characteristics of that or the ethos behind it, but it plays out differently. Mm. 
So that was really doing that work in the context of policy making, and it's exactly what I've been doing at the BBC, which was I ended up working on big programs at the BBC called Beyond Broadcasting and Creative Futures, these huge um, rethinking the BBC project from inside about what does the BBC mean in the context of you know, the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Same thing with government. Then it became Fabrica in Italy, same thing with education, back to the UK, Future Cities Catapult, and then back to Arab, same thing with building cities, spaces, the way we work with those things, technologies around them, working all over the world, everything from the Google campus in California through to um, other places in Australia and others, via most points in between. You've, you've had several people's careers in several countries, if that sounds Yeah, I think so, or it's the same career. You know, I just keep saying that. I only really have one idea. <laughs> I just keep just taking it, it from place to place. <laughs> and so, so you can... Sorry, this is such a long answer, but it's, you know, it's sort of... When you I'm glad that, it was such a good question. I'm, uh, well, yeah. I'm glad you can remember it. When you asked that question about, you know, what was it that made you that from 10-year-old to ending up in Manchester and then London, yeah. it's exactly the same stuff I'm thinking about now, to be honest. It's just that now it's in Sweden and it's, again, how does the complexity of the way that culture is mm. and places are and people are and then the technologies of everyday life they use, and I use tech in a very loose way, meaning cars and pencils just as much as AI and yeah. Internet of Things, right? So, but all of that stuff is tech. Mm -hmm. And so how does that play out? And how does it enable us to rethink what we do? And if we're rethinking what do we do, then you're into why. Why are we doing that? To what end? Mm -hmm. And now it's about how do we crash carbon emissions through the floor? How do we increase equality? How do we increase people's health? You know, how do we enable people to have meaningful social convivial lives, how do they engage in culture with each other? All of those big hairy questions, right? Do you but, feel like you're pushing more of an open door here in Sweden? Um, yes and no. So definitely it's a lot easier. You know, having worked in Australia, I can say there's a real can's point here. Right now we're talking, obviously, Australia's on fire, basically. And um, yeah, the Prime Minister is still denying that as much to do with climate change. That conversation doesn't have to be had in Sweden, pretty right. much. Yeah. So uh, let's say 10, 20% of the country accepted, 80% immediately are on board with that. And even in that 10, 20%, it's pretty much understood that climate change is real and uh, we need to do a lot about it. Uh, this may be a percentage that I'm <laughs> not addressing there, but still. Uh, we're in Oz, it's just not like that. And in the US, it's not like that. And in the UK, it's much harder to get other questions on the table, which here are sort of more understood. The other thing that's different here as well is that government still has a lot of levers to pull. The public sector is still a relatively well-funded, uh, meaningful entity in people's lives. Mm -hmm. uh, in the UK, as you probably know, um, that's been slashed and burned so much in recent years that it's... Most of my work in cities, again, is incredibly hard in the UK or mm. Australia. Not quite as much as will be in the next few years, but... No, I mean, yeah, who, who the hell knows? So it's, um, but yeah, you can imagine that when we're here, I can have a conversation with people at least. And it's, so what, what's hard then still here is because what worked in 20th century Sweden probably won't work in 21st century Sweden. Sure. So the success of Sweden in the 20th century becomes a problem because it was incredibly successful. If you look at where it went from 1900 to, let's say, 1995. Yeah. And a lot of credit is due there, and it's incredibly valuable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet the same moves that built the country from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are ones that we now need to unpick yeah. and rework in a different way are much more around, a, again, a kind of super low carbon, much more diverse population and yeah. you know, more complex world. What got you here might not get you there. Yeah. yeah. And we need completely different tools because we want to pull out different results. 
So that's hard, actually, because sometimes I think in the UK or America, things are pretty broken, <laughs> or in the developing world, I don't want to use that term, but you know what I mean, um, things didn't exist in the same way. So it's kind of, it's more open as a possibility, as you can generate, actually, in a different way. When, when the UK or Australia is literally on fire, then you can actually, you know, you can make changes in that situation. Yeah. Whereas when things are apparently working, as they are in Sweden and Finland and others, then it's harder to motivate change sometimes. Sure. So um, that's a different thing I'm struggling with. That's Dan Hell, Director of Strategic Design at Venova. You're listening to the MTF Podcast. I'm Andrew Dubber, and we're going to pick up the thread of this conversation in part two with Dan next week, when we'll talk about sound for urban environments, the future of the city, the history of the future of music, and a lot more. And one way to make sure that you don't miss out is to press the subscribe button. Don't forget to share, like, rate, and leave us a nice review, and hope you'll join us then. Until then, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.